Good morning. We're continuing our study of the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. And this morning we'll be considering the most frequent textual objections to the doctrine. I know some of you guys are getting dropped in on this and you have no idea what I'm talking about, but if you're new, I can, we can get you a copy of sermons and stuff or I can talk with you if you have questions. But the goal of this sermon is to answer objections. Specifically, I want to answer anti-Sabbatarian objections based on New Testament texts. That an anti-Sabbatarian being someone who rejects that there is a Sabbath for Christians to keep under the New Covenant. Now, for all that we've seen thus far in this series about the Sabbath day, there are texts that some interpreters claim explicitly do away with the Sabbath for Christians. There are three texts that are commonly appealed to, and here they are. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, and Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The last one is the biggest one. Often, modern evangelicals will quote those texts, and in my experience, not even give any commentary on them, because they believe that even the, the simplest reading of those passages manifestly refute any concept of a Christian Sabbath. And to be honest, let's give the devil his due for a moment. If you isolate those three passages from the context of the books that they're found in and also isolate them from the context of the rest of the whole Bible, they do seem to say that there is no Sabbath for us today. But brothers and sisters, we can't do that. We cannot isolate the scriptures from one another. Or to use more scholarly language, we cannot atomize the text. Just look at this one little portion of scripture and ignore everything else. We believe in sola scriptura. We're reformed Christians. But we also must believe in tota scriptura. That is, we believe in scripture alone, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the infallible source of all doctrine and practice. And we also believe that we must use all of scripture, tota scriptura, and not just parts Therefore, we cannot isolate passages. We must read them in their immediate context and also in the context of the whole Bible. If we don't do that, we will fall headlong into all kinds of errors and even heresies. That's actually usually how you get heresy, is you atomize texts of Scripture and ignore the rest of the Bible. Ask a Roman Catholic. You ask him, how are you justified? James 2. James 2 says faith, not faith, not faith alone, but works. What about everything else Paul says? Well, but James said, right, and it's an atomizing of a text and not looking at the entirety of Scripture or the context in which James spoke. Anyway, I won't, that could be a sermon. Won't do that now. Um, but this sermon is what I call a battleground sermon. Right, this, the, the debate about the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath is often either won or lost in the minds of many as we come to these three New Testament texts. And so I hope to show you this morning that none of these three texts refute the idea of the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. They do all tell us that the Jewish days of observance, the old covenant days, including the seventh day Sabbath, have passed away. But they do not tell us that the moral principle of keeping one day in seven holy to the Lord has passed away. And they do not teach us that there is no day for Christians to keep as a Sabbath under the new covenant. Before we begin, I must say one more thing pastorally. Beware your own prejudices. Really listen to what's being said today. Don't allow your prejudices, if you have any, I'm not making an accusation, but if you have any prejudices against the Christian Sabbath, don't let them keep you from rightly understanding the text. Go into this with an open mind and an open heart saying, whatever you have said, Lord, that's what I want to believe. Whatever you have said, Lord, that is what I want to do. He will help you. Now, ordinarily, I would have you all stand as we read the main text that I preach from, but I have no such text today. I have three texts. And so I'm going to break with my ordinary custom, and we're going to pray and then dive into each of these three portions of Scripture. So may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We want to understand what you've said in Scripture. And so we ask you to help us. Open our hearts and our minds to understand and gladly embrace whatever you've said. 
by the working of your spirit. Make the text shine brightly this morning and grant us understanding and a change of heart where we need it. Help us to clear away any prejudices that we may have so that we can gladly receive the pure word of God. As our Lord Jesus says, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. I almost said you may be seated. Uh, (laughs) You're already sitting down. Um, But let's begin with the first and I think the easiest of these three passages to deal with. And by the way, I mean, that's not the best way to put it. We're not dealing with these passages. We want to read them properly. These passages are not enemy passages to the Sabbatarian. We love the Bible, right? Christians love the Bible. So let's look at this text in its context. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul writes, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You can see, I think, probably already, anti-Sabbatarians will read this text and say, See, Paul says here that it's okay for a Christian to believe that every day is the same and that there are no differences between days. But if you esteem one day as better than another, then that's your own private conviction. Let everyone be convinced in his own mind. So then, we should leave each other alone on the issue of a Sabbath day. And Paul could only say that because there is no Sabbath day for us to keep. That's often how the anti-Sabbatarian interpretation goes. They claim that Paul is saying that all days are, in reality, absolutely completely alike, and therefore there is no binding day for the Christian. So in light of that, any observance of any day, like a Christian Sabbath, is completely up to the individual, since all days are actually the same under the new covenant. I don't believe that that is how we should read this passage, obviously. And I I think that for a couple of reasons. First, verse 6 tells us that Paul's not just talking about days in this passage. He says, the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. So observing certain days um, is only part of what Paul is discussing in this passage. Dietary regulations are also part of the conversation. This will become relevant in a moment. Verses 1 through 3 make this more explicit. The opening verses. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now apparently, there was a division within the church of Rome concerning dietary restrictions, what foods were acceptable to eat and what foods were not, and also the celebration of certain days. Now, I'm not trying to smart off, but what dietary and day issues could those possibly be? If you know your Bible well, there are certain bells starting to ring. Considering that all over the letter, Romans 11, Romans 2, Romans 3, Paul lets us know he's writing to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. He'll talk to the Gentiles for a minute, and then he'll address the Jews. It's easy to conclude, then, that Paul is referring to disagreements between Jews and Gentiles about food and days. Now, we're all probably familiar about Old Testament laws about what Jews could and could not eat. But there were also tons of days. As we'll see in Colossians 2, there were new moons, festivals, and Sabbaths that the Jews had to observe as holy days under the Old Covenant. Now, here's a question. Should such laws and days be observed by Christians? That's what the apostle is addressing here. Remember, Christianity is in its infancy. Uh, Most Gentiles actually think that Christianity is just a weird form of Judaism. And contrary to the dispensationalists, they're actually kind of (laughs) right. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Um, So they, they see the connections there, and so there's all these questions. What do we do with all of these laws and observances and stuff under the Old Covenant? There are disagreements between Christians about Old Covenant laws and how they apply to people living under the New Covenant. 
And Paul's point in verses 5 and 6 is that Christians are free to observe the dietary laws if they'd like. If you have a Jewish Christian who feels odd about eating pork or eating meat sacrificed to idols and all that, and, right, so that would be the person weak in faith, the Jewish Christian who says, I can't do that. He says, then don't eat it. And you guys who understand that you can eat it, leave them alone. And you who won't eat it, don't judge the guys who are eating it. Leave each other alone. And he says they're also free to observe Old Testament holy days if they want. After all, these Jewish Christians have been observing Passover and the Feast of Booths and all this their entire life. He said, if you want to keep doing it, go ahead. But everyone is to believe everyone else alone in these matters because they are not important. Such laws are not binding on the Christian, and so observing them is a matter of liberty. So again, Paul's talking about Old Testament dietary law and the Jewish liturgical calendar. The Jewish seventh-day observation of the Sabbath may be included here and probably is, but Paul is not talking about the Sabbath as a moral principle in this context. And he certainly isn't talking about whether or not Christians have to keep the Lord's Day, which is a distinctively, or rather distinctly Christian day and not a Jewish day. He's talking about Jewish practices and laws. Again, and the Lord's Day is not one of them. His point once again, is that Christians are free to observe or ignore those Old Testament laws because they're not moral issues. A second thing to consider. To claim that Paul is saying that all days are alike in an absolute sense, this is brilliant, this is Sam Waldron, this is not me. (laughs) To claim that Paul is saying that all days are alike in an absolute sense is to prove too much. Clearly, the apostles did not believe that every day was the same in an absolute sense. They believed that there was a day called the Lord's Day. As John wrote in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The apostles believed that there is a day that belongs to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that there is, in fact, one day every week that is different from the others. So Paul cannot mean that all days are alike in every sense. What he means is that with regard to Jewish days, all days are alike. Furthermore, the apostle himself observed the Lord's Day. <laughs> remember from remember last week, we saw him observe it in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. He preached and observed the Lord's Supper in Troas on the first day of the week. He also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he commanded the church to gather on the first day of the week. So this is not a matter of personal preference for Paul. He commanded the Galatians and the Corinthians to observe the Lord's Day. So then, Paul clearly did not believe that there was no day to be observed whatsoever under the New Covenant. And we know that because Paul himself kept a day. Maybe don't make Paul contradict himself. That's all I'm saying. Like rule one of Bible interpretation, the people who wrote the Bible are not dumb and they don't contradict themselves. But to go even further... If Paul is saying that there are no new covenant days to be observed because all days are the same, then that logic would also apply to food because he's talking about food and days in this passage. Paul here says that days are days, which would mean food is food. All food is alike as all days are alike. But we know that there is indeed holy food in the new covenant. We're going to eat it later. It's called the Lord's Supper. So though in one sense, with regard to Jewish dietary laws, all food is the same, there is nevertheless a sacred use of food that Christians must observe. In the same way, though with regard to Jewish laws, all days are the same, there is still a sacred day that Christians observe, the Lord's Day. Brothers and sisters, to to interpret this text as a Sabbatarian does proves too much. It negates any observation of any day whatsoever, which is clearly unbiblical, and it brings Paul into conflict with John and even himself, which is actually kind of funny to think about. Paul would be condemning himself here. Again, in Romans 14, Paul is talking about Jewish things, and the Lord's Day as a Christian Sabbath is not under discussion at all. Neither is the moral principle of the Sabbath being discussed. Jewish laws are what's on Paul's mind here. A third thing to consider about this passage, very briefly, this is just brilliant. I, I, I learn a lot when I study. Paul is not talking about keeping the Lord's Day because there was no disagreement within the church about that. 
do you, do you write a letter addressing problems and then address something that's not a problem? No. The observation of the first day of the week was a universal, undisputed practice of the church. But again, Paul's talking about something that was disputed, how Old Testament laws work within the New Covenant. So to try to make this passage into a refutation about the Christian Sabbath is to twist it into something that Paul wasn't even talking about. So in conclusion, we see that this text in no way destroys or undermines the doctrine of a Christian Sabbath. Now let's turn to our next text. Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Apostle Paul, once again, all these are letters by Paul, by the way. Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That's, that's a strong rebuke. The anti-Sabbatarian will read these verses and say, Paul is condemning the observation of days in this passage. He says it right there in verses 10 and 11. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And Paul's afraid for people who are observing days. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul says, says the anti-Sabbatarian, Paul tells us that to observe days is to turn back to weak and worthless principles of the world and make yourself a slave. So then, there must be no day for us to observe as Christians. And since Paul condemns observing days, there can be no Sabbath day for Christians. I'm going to say wrong again. I'm going to go with that. I don't believe that such an interpretation of the apostles' words holds up when we consider the context of this passage. I'll give you a bit of an extended quote. Robert P. Martin, he's passed away now. He's a Reformed Baptist minister. Writing about this text, uh, he said this. Paul is addressing the question, must I observe days, months, seasons, and years in order to be justified before God? Paul has now moved to a case in which the issue of Christian liberty is no longer part of the picture. At Romans 14.5, he says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. But here he says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. The question is not whether the Galatians are using their Christian liberty to the full, but whether they have been bewitched into thinking that they must observe the law of Moses including its ceremonial regulations, in order to be saved. Amen. I think that is absolutely spot on. You see, the entire letter to the Galatians, if you don't know this, memorize this, because you need to read Galatians again. The entire letter to the Galatians is the Apostle Paul dealing with a heresy that we now call Judaizing. If that sounds like Judaism, it's because it's, it's supposed to. Judaizing is the heresy of believing or teaching that we are justified, that is, we are declared righteous by God, or in common language, we are saved through faith in Christ plus obedience to the Old Testament law. The Judaizers primarily demanded circumcision in addition to faith in Christ in order to be saved. But as we look at the whole letter, it seems that they were demanding obedience to the entire Old Covenant law. Dietary observation, keeping days, cleanliness laws, etc. You must do those things in addition to believing on Christ in order to be saved. And this whole letter, right out the gates, this is Paul's most aggressive letter in the entire New Testament. Paul is hammering home again and again. We are not saved by any works that we offer to God of any kind, but are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul's driving home that we are not saved by faith in Christ plus observing the Mosaic law, including the moral law, by the way. He's saying, no, that's not it. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works from the sinner whatsoever is the great overarching theme of this entire letter. Fun fact, Galatians is what set Luther off in the Reformation. 
Not Romans. Romans got picked up later. Galatians is what got hammered the most from what I understand. Again, Paul is writing against the Judaizers. And remembering that helps us make sense of what we read in Galatians 4, 9 through 11. Paul is saying that the Galatians, by buying into the Judaizing heresy, have turned, have turned back to the weak and worthless principles of the world. And they are desiring to become slaves once more. By turning back to Old Testament regulations as a way to make themselves right with God, they were turning back to things that could never and would never save them. And it is in that sense that the Old Testament laws are weak and worthless. But what's interesting is, and this is big, check this. What's interesting is that the Galatians were Gentiles primarily. The Judaizers were Jewish. But the Galatians were ethnically not Jewish. They weren't Jews before becoming Christians, at least not most of them. They were pagans. But there are great similarities. I think this is what Paul's getting at. There are great similarities between Judaizing and paganism. Their old pagan religion was a system of ignorance of the true God and self-justification or self-salvation by works. That's all paganism. Do a bunch of stuff and make the God love you. That's paganism. But the Galatians, however, had come to know God in Christ through Paul's gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. But now they're turning back to something very similar to their old paganism. A system of self-salvation through obedience. And that's actually ignorance of the true God and His Word and His will and His work in Christ. The weak and worthless principles that they were falling back into are the principles of salvation by works. And part of their turning back was observing days and months and seasons and years as a way to make them righteous in God's sight. Consider again that the Galatians had been overrun by Judaizers. Remembering that, it then makes sense to view this as a reference to Jewish days. That fits the whole context. Just as their pagan religious observances could not save them, neither can obeying Jewish laws and regulations save them from their sins. Both Judaizing and paganism revolve around the same ungodly, self-righteous, ignorant principle. Salvation by yourself and not by Christ alone. And Paul is telling them that by submitting to the teachings of the Judaizers, they've fallen back into the same kind of religion that Christ saved them out of. Brothers and sisters, that fits the whole context of this letter. And, and it fits the phrasing that Paul uses here. I don't want to ignore this. Days and months and seasons and years refer to Old Testament holy days. You can read about these days in Leviticus chapter 23 and 25. By the way, in your Bible reading plan, everyone wants to think they at least think about skipping over Leviticus. Do you see why you don't need to do that? You need to know your Old Testament. Days refers to the Jewish seventh-day Sabbath observance and the Day of Atonement. Months refers to the festivals that occurred every month at the new moon. By the way, they're on a lunar calendar. That's why months, new moon. Seasons also translated times, refers to annual feasts like Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, etc. And years refers to, this is Leviticus 25, the sabbatical years, every seven years let the, let, let the land rest, and the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years no one owes anyone anything. Let your slaves go free. Days and months and seasons and years. If you know that Paul is dealing with Judaizing and have even a basic understanding of the Old Testament, you can understand that Paul is talking about Jewish Old Covenant days and their observation. And what's Paul telling the Galatians and us? What's he telling us? None of that will save you. None of that will save you. Allow me to preach for a moment. The apostle is stressing that no obedience to the law can make anyone right with God. Again, only Christ can save sinners. Oh, if, if, if you're tuning out on the Sabbath stuff, you shouldn't. But tune back in for this. Our works will never be good enough. Only Christ can make us right with God. 
Only Christ can take away our sins. Only Christ can make us righteous by giving us his perfect life of righteousness. Only Christ can stand between a holy God and wicked sinners and make peace between them. Only Christ can represent sinful men as our new, true, and better Adam, our perfect federal head. Only Christ can do this for us. And how do we receive him? By faith, not by works. By faith alone, nothing we do can make us right with God. Faith alone in Christ alone is the only way for sinners to be saved. Take that with you. Brothers and sisters, Paul is simply not dealing with the idea of a Christian Sabbath in this letter. And what he says here about observing days is completely irrelevant to our discussion about the Sabbath. He's not dealing with Christian days. He's not dealing with the creation principle of one day and seven belonging to God. He's dealing with Jewish issues and heretics who are denying justification by faith alone. Paul is dealing with a legalistic use of the law. By the way, it's actually very offensive when an anti-Sabbatarian quotes Galatians 4. They're accusing me of Judaizing and denying justification by faith alone. And they don't know that's what they're doing. But if they understood the context, it's actually insanely offensive. What they're saying functionally is you're not a Christian if you keep a day. Yikes. Read the context. Paul's dealing with a legalistic use of the law. He's not dealing with the right use of the law, which is obedience out of gratitude for God's mercy and the law as the rule of life for the believer, which is what the Christian doctrine of the Sabbath is dealing with. He's not dealing with a disagreement among faithful Christians about what days and about days and food like Romans 14. He's dealing with heresy and an improper use of the law. And in this passage, he's highlighting the folly of believing that observing days or any kind of obedience will make you right with God. Again, keeping the Lord's day is just not under discussion. Rather, a denial of justification by faith alone is. Furthermore, as with the Romans passage, those who claim that Paul is saying that there is no day for us to observe are once again proving too much. Why? Because Paul observed a day. Is Paul a Judaizer? Paul kept the Lord's day. Is Paul saying he's not a Christian? I don't think so. He's an apostle. Again, he's dealing with legalism. So in conclusion, we see that this text in no way destroys or undermines the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. Because to make these verses into a refutation of the Sabbath is to ignore the context and the issues Paul's dealing with. But we now turn to our third controversial text, and this one might be the most difficult. I personally think it is. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Once again, Paul. Paul writes to us, or rather Paul writes to the Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Some of you are grinning because you already know where this is about to go. (laughs) Some of you know. Anti-Sabbatarians point at this passage and they say, Paul says here that we should not let anyone pass judgment on us with regard to a Sabbath. So, for you to tell Christians that there is a Sabbath for them to keep is a violation of this text. In reality, they say, there is no more Sabbath, and that's why we shouldn't let anyone judge us about keeping one. Furthermore, because the Sabbath was a shadow of Christ, verse 17, and Christ has come, there can be no Sabbath for us today under the new covenant. Now, for the third time. I don't believe that this is the correct way to understand this passage. Let's consider the context. Verse 16 starts with, therefore. Mr. Rogers does preaching, right? Let's see what the therefore is there for. So let's look at what comes before the verse. We could go back further than this, but let's look at verses 13 through 15. And you... Oh, this is such a good passage. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses 
by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. That's good. Paul's talking about how Jesus has worked redemption for us by the blood of his cross. God has forgiven us for all of our trespasses, all of our sins, by nailing them to the cross with Christ. Christ has made a perfect and full atonement for all our sins in his suffering and death in our place. In Christ, God has triumphed over all spiritual authorities. That's probably a reference to satanic forces. And he has worked salvation on our behalf, on behalf of everyone who trusts in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that there's another heresy in Colossae that was similar to Judaizing. Someone is telling these people that their sins aren't forgiven. That's why Paul says your sins are forgiven. Therefore, don't let anyone mess with you about this stuff. Now, there are some complicated twists to this heresy in Colossae that I don't fully understand and I can't get into this morning. But part of the heresy was the belief that obeying Old Testament laws, in addition to angel worship and asceticism, that's being like a hermit, that's, we see that in verse 18, plus faith in Jesus were necessary for salvation. Just like the Galatians, these Colossian Christians were being told that they had to keep Old Testament dietary laws. That's why in verse 16, questions of food and drink. And it seems they were also being told that they needed to observe the Jewish calendar, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And this all must be done, said the heretics, in order to be saved. And we see more clearly, by the way, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air, we see more clearly that the Colossian heretics were teaching a legalistic view of salvation from verse 20. Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits also translated elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? This is the same language Paul used in Galatians 4.9. And there Paul was referring to works that God did not command of Christians and that could not save them. These elementary principles of salvation by works. Paul is dealing with basically the same issue with the Colossians. Same thing he was dealing with 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 the Galatians. Pretty much the same thing with the Colossians. Paul is writing against a heresy that in part denies justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And again, that's why he says, Christ has put away your sins at the cross. They were nailed to the cross with him. Therefore, don't let anyone pass judgment on you with these things. You're saved in Christ. Ignore this nonsense. Brothers and sisters, Paul, once again, is not dealing with the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. He's dealing with legalism and the improper use of the Old Testament law. Paul's not dealing with whether or not we have any day to observe or keep. He's dealing with the claims that Christians have to keep Jewish days. And he says Christians are not to allow anyone to pass judgment upon them with regard to those things. Amen. But that raises a question. If you're like me, you like to, I don't believe anyone the first time. <laughs> How do you know that Paul is only talking about Jewish days here? How do you know that? Well, we know that because of the phrase festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. This is why you need to read your Old Testament. There, those three terms are used together in the Old Testament to refer to Jewish days of observance. I'll read two passages. One from a book that very few people actually read on a regular basis. Second Chronicles, chapter 31, verse... Some of you are grinning. Some of you don't know the last time you read Second Chronicles. I'm not scolding you. Read it. I know that the genealogies can get long and tedious. Truck through them. It'll be all right. Second Chronicles, chapter 31, verse 3 says this. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings... The burnt offerings of morning and evening and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Nehemiah, another passage. Chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. 
for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So there they are. These are references to Jewish days under the Old Covenant. And what's interesting to note, by the way, if you're still not convinced, the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the exact same words in those two texts that Paul uses in Colossians 2.16. They're talking about the same thing. They're talking about Jewish days of observance under the Old Covenant. And Paul is telling us, you don't have to keep them. Now, for our purposes this morning, it's also good to note that a Sabbath refers to the Jewish Seventh-day Sabbath. It also refers to other special Sabbath days like the Day of Atonement. And this fits with what's Paul, what Paul's talking about. Some people are bothered by the fact that Paul would be including the Seventh-day Sabbath, but I don't think that we should be bothered by that. And that shouldn't bother us because that is not the Sabbath as a moral principle established at creation. Paul's talking about a Jewish day to be observed. And he's just saying simply those days are no longer binding. But that does not mean, please hear me, that does not mean that the creation ordinance of one day in seven belonging to God has gone away. It just doesn't. To take what Paul says here and say, well, there is nothing for us to observe. There, is no, there, there can be no Sabbath for the New Testament. Is putting something into the text that's not under discussion and simply isn't there. Paul is just saying that the Jewish day is over. That fits the context. That's Paul's main point. And remember this. This is the complicated point that I lost some of you with. The Sabbath is a moral positive law. Moral in substance, positive in which day is to be observed. Paul says the Jewish day is gone. That is the positive application. But that does not mean that there is no Christian day. The text does not demand such a conclusion. And, as I hope to show in a minute, such a conclusion will undo the rest of what the Bible says about the Sabbath. A Christian day for rest and worship is not under discussion. Judaizing-esque legalism and heresy is. But that leaves one final question with this passage. What about verse 17? If the Jewish Sabbath is a shadow of Christ and Christ has come, then how does the Sabbath continue? Again, I already put it into the question. Remembering that Paul is referring to the seventh day Sabbath, we see pretty clearly that the observation of that particular day under the old covenant did point to Christ. It did. The seventh day Sabbath symbolized God's promise to give rest to his people. Read Hebrews 4. God's been holding out rest since the seventh day. It's what it's a sign of, among other things. By the way, something can have more than one meaning. It can have, something can symbolize more than one thing. But that rest has been held out since the first week of creation. And when the weekly day of rest was reiterated, not established, but reiterated under the old covenant, after the fall of man into sin, then that weekly Sabbath reminded the Jews that God promised to give ultimate rest one day through the Messiah. So each week for the, for the believing Jew under the Old Covenant, each seventh day pointed to God's promise to send the rest giver, Jesus. And in Christ, the substance has come. The substance has come. And he has fulfilled that Jewish day by giving rest to all who trust in him. And guess what he did after that? He made another day by coming back from the dead. Again, read Hebrews 4. Read Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. We can talk about it after church. But in saying these things, Paul does not repeal one day in seven belonging to God. He doesn't. Again, he's just saying that the Jewish day is gone. But that does not necessarily mean that there is no Christ-instituted day for rest and worship under the new covenant. The passing away of the seventh-day Sabbath, hear me, it can be asserted without at the same time asserting that the moral principle of Sabbath-keeping has passed away. To equate the two is bringing something into the text that is not there. Furthermore, and again, one last shot here, there's clearly still one day in seven that Christ commands us to observe. It's the Lord's Day. So, brothers and sisters, keeping the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath is not a shadowy thing. It's not looking forward to Christ like the Jewish day did. It's not a shadow. It's a bright sun. 
shining on the world that declares Jesus has come, he has saved his people, he is risen, he is Lord. The Christian Sabbath is not a shadow any more than the Lord's Supper is a shadow. It's a weekly memorial to the Christ who has come and works salvation for those who will trust in him. So then, once again, we see that this text does not destroy or undermine the doctrine of a Christian Sabbath. And at this point, I'd like to go on the offensive against anti-Sabbatarianism. I've been defending the doctrine this whole sermon, but now, as is in my character, I would like to launch a bit of an offensive. <laughs> Some of you are smirking. And I mean none of this with a mean spirit, by the way, that I'm getting ready to say. These are just things you need to think about. For any non-Sabbatarians here today, there are some things that you should consider. There are some serious and weighty things that you will have to deal with or give up if you don't believe that there is a Sabbath under the New Covenant. You're going to have problems. There are some serious issues that you're going to have to deal with and questions that you're going to have to answer if you reject the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. Here we go. First, why is a creation ordinance done away with? How is that even possible? Something that God instituted before he made any covenants with men. How did that go away? Could marriage, gender, male headship, and labor and procreation go away while time still endures? If the Sabbath creation ordinance has gone away under the new covenant, then how in the world do the others remain that the apostles appeal to creation? Second question. How is it that a moral law has passed away? Oh my goodness, this is huge. One of the Ten Commandments is gone? Does morality change? Does the definition of good and evil change? Bigger question, does God change? Because he himself is the standard. The law is a reflection of his own character. Do, do we no longer need a day for worship and rest? If Adam needed one and he hadn't fallen into sin yet, but somehow we don't need one now? Does God no longer require us to set aside time to worship him? Why was the fourth commandment written on stone if it was to pass away? If the fourth commandment was ceremonial, why did God speak it himself, write it himself, and have it placed within his throne? Why are the Ten Commandments appealed to in the New Testament as the standard for morality if one of them no longer applies to anyone? Why is there an allegedly ceremonial law in the middle of the summary of the moral law? How did a moral law go away? Third, what are you going to do with places like Isaiah 56 that prophesy the Sabbath continuing and being kept after the Messiah comes? How are you going to deal with that? Another prophecy question. What is the law written on the hearts of all New Covenant members that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31? If it's not the Ten Commandments, you have no idea what he's talking about. By the way, the Ten Commandments fit the context because God talks about bringing people out of Israel or out of Egypt and making a covenant with them. If it's not the Ten Commandments, what is it? You have to say, oh no. Fourth, what will you do with Jesus' words in Mark 2? The Sabbath was made for man. Jesus tells us that the Sabbath was intended by God to bless all mankind. I know what I'm getting ready to say is sharp-tongued, but I want you to see what you have to deal with. If Jesus says the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing for all men, I guess you'll have to say that the loving and kind King Jesus took a blessing away from mankind. I guess you'd have to say that the New Covenant, which the author of Hebrews tells us is in every way superior to the old, is missing a blessing that the old one had. That doesn't seem right. I'm not going to do that. Fifth, and maybe this is the most intensely practical for some of you, how will you demand rest from your labor each week? I mean this on a practical level. How will you morally demand time to worship God? If the Sabbath command is gone, then so is any command from God for employers to give their employees a day of rest or time to worship. How are you going to demand a day off? How are you going to demand time to be able to go to church? Now, some people will say, I've thought this through a little bit. Some people will say, well, Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That command 
will protect rest and time for worship. I hear you, but that doesn't work here. Why? Because in Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul tells us that loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. So what you're doing whenever you appeal to love your neighbor is subconsciously appealing to the moral law as it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. And there is only one moral law that tells you to give rest and time to worship to your neighbor. That's the fourth commandment. That commandment alone tells you to let others rest and worship. Without that commandment, you no longer have any revelation from God guaranteeing those things to you or anybody else. To believe that there is no command to give rest or time to worship has terribly cruel results. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a world where it's morally permissible to work people 365 days a year and not permit them to assemble with God's people. And praise God, I don't have to live in that kind of a world because the Sabbath remains. It does. But the non-Sabbatarian has no such foundation. Brothers and sisters, to deny that a Sabbath day remains for Christians leaves you with difficulties that you don't want to have to deal with. It leaves you, I don't think that I'm saying this too strongly, it leaves you with a Bible that contradicts itself. And it leaves you with a moral gap that will lead to human suffering. Tell me, how, how good is our culture? And I'm not, there are many, many, many things that go into this. But has our culture gotten better or worse since people have quit observing the Lord's Day as a Christian Sabbath? Say what you will about the Puritans, that they were too strict. There was a general piety and morality in our country. Why? Because people were expected to go to church on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. What else are you going to do? Everything's closed. You don't have to go to church, I guess. But everyone's shutting down. Why? Because most of us are going to church. There's a moral gap that leads to human suffering when the Lord's Day is not observed. So embrace the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. Now, you know, some people stake their entire understanding of the Sabbath on the three New Testament texts that we've considered this morning. But in doing so, they violate the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. That's what they're doing. And they do this by ignoring or mishandling the context in which those texts were written and all that the Old Testament says about the Sabbath. While ignoring the context in which Paul wrote to the Romans, Galatians, and Colossians, they also forget or ignore that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, a moral law, and has tons of parallels to the Lord's Day. To interpret these three texts in the way that anti-Sabbatarians do brings the scripture into conflict with itself. Brothers and sisters, we can't do that. We can't mishandle the word like that. And one last point before I get into application here, and it'll be brief. This is from Samuel Waldron. To use these three texts to say that there is no Sabbath for the Christian is like the Jehovah's Witness who uses Jesus' words, the Father is greater than I, as a proof that Jesus is not God. What do I mean? The Jehovah's Witness rejects the clear testimony of the rest of the Bible and hyper-focuses on the one proof text, lifting it, out of, lifting it out of its context. That is not how we're to use the Word of God. But a lot of people do that with the Sabbath. So then, brothers and sisters, for application, two things here. First, don't twist Scripture. Don't twist Scripture. Some of it's hard to understand. That is for sure. And that, it took me a long time to come to some of these conclusions. Scripture can be hard, and that's why we have to study it diligently. We must remember that a text without a context is a pretext. That is, if we lift a text out of its context, we can make the Bible say whatever we want. Please hear me. Christ has done too much to save us for us to then treat his word lightly and not look deeply into it. We must be diligent to rightly divide the word of truth. Second and lastly, let me end this sermon by reiterating something that Paul said in one of our texts, but actually applying it to the Christian Sabbath. Sounds weird, but bear with me. In Galatians 4, 9 through 11, Paul tells the Galatians, Keeping days, months, seasons, and years won't save you. He tells them to render, nothing you do that you render to God as part of your salvation, none of that's going to help you. 
And actually to do that is to turn back to the weak and worthless principles of the world. Now, though Paul was not talking about the Christian Sabbath, I do think there's a principle in what he's saying here that is good for us to remember. Keeping the Sabbath won't save you. Not the Jewish one, not the Christian one. Keeping the Sabbath won't save you. Oh, please, brothers and sisters, Christ alone saves sinners. I'll beat this drum until God takes the air out of my lungs. You have no good works. Your best works are tainted with sin. Remember how I talked about in the scripture reading from Matthew? This is divine providence. Why do you do what you do? Are you doing it like a hypocrite? All of your works, I don't care what they are. We talked about this in my small group last week. Oh, maybe you helped that homeless person, and it was 90% for the glory of the Lord, and also a little bit that you want this guy to think that you're a good person. Guess what? That good work is tainted with sin now. Your best works are tainted with sin. Isaiah tells us our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. If God were to judge, like with Noah, if God were to judge our works of obedience with the strictest measure of justice, we would always come up short. Our motives aren't always perfect. Our obedience is certainly not perfect. Everything is fallen, or rather, just covered with fallenness and sinfulness. Nothing we do can make us right with God, not even keeping the Lord's day. Only Christ can save us. He alone has taken away our sins by burying them in his body on the tree. He alone has sprinkled us with his blood and washed us clean. He alone has suffered the judgment of God that was due to us for our sins. He alone has perfectly obeyed God in our place. And as our representative, Christ alone saves sinners. So I beg you, do not allow keeping the Lord's day to lead you to self-righteousness and legalism. To puff your chest out and think that you're earning something or that you're doing something for God by keeping his day absolutely defeats the purpose of the day. What is the purpose of the day? To glorify the risen Lord Jesus who has saved you by himself and without your help. Don't bastardize the Lord's day. Don't you turn it into something that it's not. Now hear me, you should keep the day. You should obey God. And Sabbath keeping is part of our Christian obedience. It's a means of sanctification. But justification only comes through the work of Christ alone. Applied to us by faith alone. Your attempts to keep the day won't make you righteous any more than your attempts to keep any of the other commandments. You're a sinner. So then even though you must strive to obey him, you must look to Christ always for your right standing with God. So then in conclusion, may the Lord teach us to keep the day. And may we always remember to do so for the right reasons. Love and gratitude for the salvation we have freely received in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Thank you. What else can we say? Thank you. You have been kinder to us than we ever deserve. You have done it all for us. Help us to live for you. And among many other things that you command us, help us to keep your day holy because we love you. Because you've saved us. Oh God, if there's a pharisaical, legalistic attitude in any of our hearts, I pray that you would crush it to death with the gospel. Let all of our obedience be done for love and at the end of the day say, I am an unprofitable servant who have merely done my duty. But let us not do a mere duty. Let us obey you in sincere love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.